Amen. All right. Well, good morning and uh, welcome once again to FBC. We're so glad that you are here and want to invite you to grab a Bible and turn with me to the book of Acts chapter 1, verse 15, as we just read it aloud. Uh, my name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here, and this is week four of our new sermon series, Walking Through the Book of Acts Little by Little. And so we are glad that you are with us. Um, hey, thank you to those of you that participated in the 114 prayer time this past week. If that means nothing to you, don't worry about it. It's something we talked about last week. If you were able to pray with us as a church at 114 each day this past week, thank you. I hope that it was meaningful for you. It was certainly fun for me. Uh, and I've already heard a few people share some stories from that. So thank you for joining us as a church family. Uh, in prayer. And hey, one other thing too, as we get going that I didn't mention earlier about the baptism, uh, this is a celebratory day, of course, uh, for justice and his family. And we celebrate this step of obedience he's taken, proclaiming his faith in Christ, his need for a savior to forgive him and make him alive and cleanse him from his sins. So we celebrate all of that, but this is also a, a special day for our church, right? For a church family. There's a reason baptisms aren't done like in a closet somewhere that nobody sees, right? It's this public testimony, which is to really the whole world, but also to our church to remember that we have this part to play in, in justice's life, in his growth, in his uh, maturation as a follower of Jesus, that, that he is a brother uh, in the family of God. And we now celebrate that, welcome him into the church family um, and come alongside him in prayer and support and encouragement to justice, to Frankie and Ann, to their whole family. And so it's a, it's a community day where we as a church are reminded of our, our really nature as a, a new family, a new people in Christ. So don't forget that and uh, maybe send a casserole over to their house or something. I don't know. However you want to express your love. Uh, there you go. Um, with that, hey, let's pray as we get ready to jump in into the word. Father, thank you for, for your word. Uh, thank you that you've made yourself known to us. Thank you that we can read the scriptures and come to know you more fully and what you call us to. So would you teach us by your spirit this morning? And open our eyes where we are blind and open our ears where we are deaf. Um, just do all that you want to do in this time, Lord. We look to you now. And we, again, as a church family, just celebrate uh, justice and his faith in you, Jesus, that you've saved him from sin and death and brought him into your family uh, through your cross. Thank you. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Well, back in 2015, a book came out that we've talked about before. It's called Mission Drift. And in it, the authors of the book argue that it's possible and actually quite likely that organizations drift from their original mission slowly over time. And not necessarily due to ill will, they lose sight of why their group was formed in the first place. He uses the example in the book of Harvard University. And as many of us know, the, the Christian roots of the Ivy League schools and how they originally were formed as distinctly Christian universities, training ministers to go out and preach the gospel and shepherd the people of God. And now, of course, we know that although Harvard remains academically renowned, um, it's drifted from its Christian roots. They also use the example of the YMCA. Most people agree it's, it's fun to stay there. But um, recently they've dropped the MCA, right? It's just the Y. 
and it's no longer the Young Men's uh, Young Men Christian Association. It's just the Y, which again still do fine, fine work. They're about you know community and, and social action and um, health and for young people. Not not a bad thing, but they've drifted right from their their Christian roots, being a distinctly Christian organization focused on discipleship and actually training missionaries when they were first founded to be sent out. Uh, it's not just a Christian phenomenon, though. Mission drift. Think about McDonald's, how in, in the last decade or so, I remember reading articles a few years ago that talked about the pressure McDonald's is facing to incorporate healthy items into their menu, apples and salads and milk for kids and things like that. And it's really sad. They, for, they forgot who they are. <laughs> They've forgotten who they are and their identity. I mean, you don't go to McDonald's for vegetables, right? So it turns out that it's possible for churches as well to drift uh, from their mission, to forget who they are, why we are here. And so really the whole study of the book of Acts is this opportunity to look back at the foundation of the church, the formation of the church, and, and see the roots of this movement we call Christianity, that, that's centered on the person of Jesus and his gospel. And the, this morning especially, we look at a key pivotal transition time in the life of the church, and it reminds us what the church is. It reminds us why we're here. So we'll, we'll get into all of that this morning as we go. But first look at how the scene starts in verse 15. It says, In those days Peter stood up among the believers a group numbering about 120 and said, brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. <coughs> Remember what we've seen so far, just if you've missed the first few week of, weeks of Acts, uh, Jesus uh, was... Alive, again, resurrected from the dead, and he appeared to his disciples, and he was teaching his disciples. Last week we saw his ascension, right? How he returned to heaven to his father to sit at his right hand, and the disciples are waiting now in Jerusalem for the coming of the Holy Spirit, just as Jesus told them to. And in verse 15, while the group is gathered, we see our old friend Peter. You remember Peter, right? We, we spent years in the Gospel of John, uh, up close and personal with Peter. What do we remember about Peter? He's bold. He's impulsive. He takes charge. And we see that our, our same old friend here, standing up amongst the group, acting really as their spokesperson, speaking for them. He's this key leader in the church. And he's not wrong in taking a prominent place. The Lord Jesus himself said, upon this rock, I will build my church. And so Peter stands up among the group in verse 15, and he explains and he speaks about what happened to Judas. Well, it must have been a really difficult reality for the disciples to come to terms with. Judas, uh, verse 17 says, he was one of our number and shared in our ministry. Judas was one of the 12, one of the inner circle he was someone who had followed Jesus, someone who had seen the miracles of Jesus with the others, someone who heard the teachings of Jesus. He was someone who had had drinks and meals with the disciples. He was one who told jokes with them and laughed with them and done life with them for a number of years. But ultimately, he betrays Jesus. 
And here we read he, he takes his own life. <laughs> Matthew gives us a fuller explanation of this in his gospel, verse, excuse me, chapter 27, where he explains that Judas had some regret over his decision. He tries to give the money back to the Jewish leaders. They don't want it. He throws it at them. There's a purchase of a field involved, and he kills himself. It was unclean bribe money that the Jewish leaders used to buy the field. They buried him there with other foreigners. It has the name the Field of Blood. Now, we're, we're not sure really what to make of Judas. There's a, there's a lot here. Yes, there are some Bible scholars who think that his remorse over his sin and betrayal was sincere. And while suicide was not the right response to his guilt, because it's never the right response, it does not automatically condemn him either. There are some people who have been taught, uh, usually in the Catholic Church, that suicide is a mortal and unforgivable sin. We don't find that truth in Scripture. Suicide is certainly wrong. God is the one who gives and has the authority and power to take life, not us. So suicide is a sin, but that's all it is. It's a sin. And so a person will either be saved or condemned, not on their means of death, but on the validity of their faith. Were they united to Jesus by faith? Believing that Jesus died for the forgiveness of their sins? Trusting in him? That's the question. Did Judas believe that? I don't know if we can say for sure. Now, while talking about suicide, I realize this is a, it's a sensitive topic, and I don't want to be naive to the fact that perhaps some of us in this room have, have wrestled with these thoughts, or those that we love have wrestled with these thoughts. I want to encourage you, if that's you, to please get help. Please talk to someone. Please know that you have people who love you and that you're not alone. There is a, a, a suicide crisis hotline. I'm not sure if you're aware. If you dial the number 988, uh, it leads you to talk to, just like 911, 988, to talk to a mental health professional who can come alongside you and encourage you in a time of crisis. But I also want to say you have, again, a, a church family who, who loves you. You have uh, pastors, myself, Pastor Ian, who would love to talk with you. You have uh, uh, friends, perhaps a community group leader, perhaps a youth leader, uh, a parent, someone in your life that you can talk to. We want you to know if that's you, you're not alone. And we take it really seriously to want to love you and come alongside you. Please talk to someone. Now, regarding all of this, the betrayal of Judas, these confusing events that unfold. Notice what Peter says in verse 20. He quotes the Psalms. He says, For it's written in the book of Psalms, May his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place. Somehow Peter looks to all these unfolding events. It's the hand of God. Psalm 69. It's a psalm about judgment on those who persecute God's people. And there are these clues then in scripture that God wasn't surprised by Judas' betrayal. In fact, that decision had been known to God for some time, and the Holy Spirit had left these verbal breadcrumbs, you could call them, in the Psalms, pointing forward to such an event. Look at what he says in verse 16. Brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled 
in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, meaning his betrayal. The scripture had to be fulfilled. Judas betraying Jesus. Is that perplexing for anyone? This is where we see the intersection of God's sovereign will and our human responsibility and decisions. Believe me, much ink has been spilt and many hours spent around the campfire discussing topics like predestination, the will and decrees of God, the free will of man, human decisions, how all of that fits together. Uh, We need to do our best when we come to these topics to go where Scripture leads us, right? As with any topic. As I study scripture, it seems that two truths are consistently presented. One is that God is sovereign. His word will be fulfilled. He does all that he pleases. His will always comes to pass. You can think about even events like Joseph in the book of Genesis being sold into slavery in Egypt. Such a traumatic and tragic and life-altering abuse and an event. And he is able to look at it and say to his brothers, right, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Somehow, even this evil was used by God and part of the will of God for good to come. We see the same sort of language later in Acts chapter 2. We'll read about it. Uh, about the the crucifixion of Christ, carried out by wicked and evil men, and yet according to the definite plan of God. So we see that God is sovereign and his will always comes to pass. And yet we see this second truth that perhaps feels like a paradox when put next to the first, that we are responsible for our lives and our choices and our decisions. We cannot throw our hands up and say, what God has determined will come to pass. Therefore, I have no part to play. I have no decisions to make. I have nothing to do. I'm not guilty. I mean, was Judas morally responsible for betraying Jesus? Yes, absolutely. He was morally responsible for doing it. Joseph's brothers were guilty and morally responsible for their wickedness. And here's the difficulty. We want it neat and clean where we say, well, it's either God's will and everything is determined beforehand. And so we have uh, no decision, no part to play, no human agency. Or we say, well, it's all about our choices, our decision. It's up to us. And God's will is is impotent and he's unable to bring about his purposes when I believe the scriptures teach both. And the authors of scripture, uh, the, the Jews, were much more comfortable than we are allowing those two truths to overlap and sit in tension. And it makes us a little, uh, makes us squirm a little bit and we want to sort it out. Uh, but the end of the day, I'm not sure we can. We simply have to look and see both of them in Scripture. Now, the last thing here, I want you to notice again what Peter says when looking at the Old Testament. Look at how he talks about the Old Testament Scriptures. Yes, they had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David. 
David, of course, authored many of the Psalms. So what is this telling us about the Bible? Who spoke it out? It says the Holy Spirit. The scriptures had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke through David. And so we see this really doctrine of scripture here, that the scriptures are breathed out, spoken out, inspired by God. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all scripture is God-breathed. It it does not have a human origin. It comes from the very mouth of God, the Holy Spirit. However, God uses a human author to write, in this case, David. And so, excuse me, this is why we hold the Bible in a category of its own. It's inspired. It's inerrant. There are no other writings that have such authority because it's the very word of God. So we don't just have human ideas. I think that's kind of maybe the modern way many people look at the Bible. It's just uh, man's ideas about God. Uh, But instead, what we find in the Bible are God's ideas about man and everything else. So we have to see that it's the Holy Spirit speaking. It's God himself speaking when we come to the scriptures through human authors. Now, that still leaves the question, it's very well and good, but what do we do about this whole Judas situation and the 12 becoming 11? Look at what Peter says. We'll skip ahead to, he quotes the Psalms, then verse 21. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. From one of these must become or for one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Peter says, fellas, we have a job opening and we need to fill it, right? We have to choose a 12th apostle since there's only 11 of us now. Verse 21 tells us that replacing Judas was necessary, Peter says. Why? Why would there need to be 12 apostles? Why would there need to be 12 men forming the foundation for this new movement, the church. Well, as we think about it, 12 is a fairly significant number in the Bible. We could point to uh, uh, several examples, but of course, the one that comes most to mind is the 12 sons of Israel. We look back to the Old Testament and we see, well, Jesus didn't randomly or accidentally come up with 12 core disciples. It's modeled after the 12 sons of Israel, the 12 sons of Israel who became the 12 tribes of Israel, the people of God in the Old Testament. Now, the 12 tribes of Israel had separated from one another and uh, formed two separate kingdoms. They'd been separate for some time, about a thousand years before Jesus' time. We have the northern and southern kingdoms formed. And we see that Israel then hadn't been the 12 in some time. There hadn't been unity. But the people believed that the coming Messiah would change all of that. That the Messiah would come and the long-awaited promised ruler would reestablish Israel as a prominent nation, as the one that is revered and honored and known throughout the world and leading the world to come to know the one true God. The Old Testament prophets spoke and wrote about this. And so the disciples of Jesus 
could see what was happening. They could put the puzzle pieces together, counting to 12 and seeing that Jesus was doing a profound work of of reestablishing, reforming, you could say, the people of Israel, calling 12 apostles, mirroring the 12 tribes. So Jesus came to reconstitute Israel in himself, this new people, a new family, a new kingdom, not based on ethnicity, or birth, but based on new birth, faith in Christ. And the new Israel begins with the Israel of old, you could say the remnant that is there. And yet now Gentiles are brought in, grafted in. People from all tribes and tongues and nations are brought in to follow Jesus. He launched a new people of God, made up of all who believe in him as the Messiah. And Jesus was going to build this new nation, this new kingdom, upon the foundations of the apostles. Ephesians 2.20 says as much, on the foundation of the apostles with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. So these 12 apostles were a key step in the story of the work of Christ and his church. Some view this theology as uh, a theology of replacement. It's a whole new setup. And yet I think that language of scripture is more closely related to fulfillment, organic development. We see that the fulfillment of the hopes and promises of the people of God in the Old Testament are found in Christ and his church. It's this continuation of the people of God. There's one true and healthy olive tree, you could say. It's not like God cut down the tree and set up a new tree to use the Romans 11 uh, language, if that means something to you. Um, It's this continuation of the people of God. And so this passage helps us really clarify and identify and remember uh, who we are as the church, what it means to be the church. The church founded on the gospel of Jesus and his apostles' message is about Uh, that message going forth into all the earth. Disciples being made, seeing men and women come to know Jesus and their lives being transformed in him. The church is the people of God built on the message and ministry of the apostles. Now, they have a big decision to make as they're replacing Judas then, don't they? It can't just be anybody that they bring in to the role of apostle. They're not going to post on local job boards, you know, and and LinkedIn and scour there and see uh, who who applies. Like our our last hire turned out to be a snake. So tell us why you want the job. You know, like some extensive interview process. They they didn't go about it like that. They had some specific criteria for who would be the 12th. Wait, what does verse 21 says? It has to be someone who was with them from the beginning. Someone who had heard, seen, knew everything firsthand from Jesus' baptism to his resurrection and ascension. Why? Well, Jesus told them they were to be his witnesses. And witnesses do what? They speak and tell of what they've seen and experienced. And so you can't be a witness of something if you haven't seen and experienced it. And so this 12th apostle needed to be there from the beginning. Verse 23, so they nominated two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice. Fun that Justice was baptized today on a day when we read that. Verse 24, then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's, oh, excuse me, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. 
Show us which of these two you have chosen they take over, or to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias, so he was added to the eleven apostles. <clears throat> two men are nominated from the group, Joseph and Matthias, Joe and Matt. And the group prayed and then rolled the dice. Interesting, right? It says they cast lots, which, uh, again, ancient version of rolling dice, basically. What they would do is they would take rocks or jars of uh, or like broken pottery shards, sometimes animal bones, and they would like maybe write a name on it, put it in a bag and shake the bag out. And whichever one popped out, that would be the answer. That would be the, the, the winner. That would be the, uh, the word of God, essentially, in a way. Not the word of God, that's the wrong phrase, but the uh, decision from the Lord. Matthias was deemed to be the man for the job. Is that, does anyone cast lots today when you make decisions? A few of you? Okay. <laughs> it's, it's strange to our ears, right, that they would go about it this way. And, and yet it, it was this, this practice in the Old Testament that we see from time to time. Proverbs 16, says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. So there was this awareness that in engaging in this process, they, they were seeking the will of God and his, his outcome. Uh, this was a historically appropriate way often for the Jews to make decisions. Uh, we don't see it all the time in scripture, but again, it's, it's mentioned here and there. Uh, but again, the key is that it's the decision of God that they're seeking and that ultimately they are finding. And I would say, as we look at this text, uh, casting lots is more described than it is prescribed. We see it happening, but it's not necessarily saying, hey, we should go and do the same. In fact, this is the last time in the Bible we ever see God's people making a decision this way. <clears throat> you know what? The very next chapter, we see the coming of the Holy Spirit. Uh, it's seems quite timely then. The Holy Spirit falls and indwells his church and his people and is to what lead them into the truth. And so they now, we now as the church rely on the Holy Spirit's guidance to make these important decisions. So we're not going to cast lots at our membership meeting next week. Don't worry. Um, although maybe you can make a case for it. I don't know. But anyways, that, it's not the main point of the text, but I do want us to look. There's a few helpful pieces in this passage when we come to thinking about making decisions. It's not the main point of the text, like how to make biblical decisions. And yet we see it modeled here. There's this process with the exception of casting lots. We see these steps in a decision-making process that, uh, that do apply today. And we do see practice in the life of the church. And so think with me just for a moment about some of the steps we see involved as they're coming to this decision, the 12th. Uh, first, they look to scripture. Right? There's some kind of theological guidance. Peter speaks of the Psalms and looks to the word of God to try to make sense of what's going on around him. And so in making decisions for us today, we similarly should look to the word of God. And the first question we should ask when thinking about a decision is, what does God have to say about this? What does God's word say about this topic, about this question, about this decision? Now, there might not be a direct answer from scripture for every decision we have to make. 
Uh, however, uh, we can look to biblical principles to understand morally, understand uh, what factors should go into our decision, what we should value as believers, and so on. Sometimes, again, the questions we are asking are not the questions that the scripture is trying to answer. And yet, usually we can find biblical principles that apply to whatever it is we are facing. They look to scripture. Also, what do they do in verse 24? It says they pray. They say, God, we want your will to be done. We want to know what you want. It's not about us and just our desires and what we hope happens. But Lord, what do you want? That's a great prayer to pray, a great way to come before the Lord and say, Lord, in this, I want to please you. Lord, I need your guidance. I want to listen to your voice. And I think often in our, our lives, uh, we, we skip those steps. And we want to make decisions based on what feels good or what we want to be true or what we like, our own preferences. And we don't really run it through the filter of, okay, scripture and prayer. And then this last one, uh, notice it's a communal step. Community was involved in this decision-making process. They nominated two men. Verse 23 says, they nominated so it's not this solo project with Peter saying, hey, I got my two guys, you choose between them. It's actually conversation amongst the community about uh, this decision. So various people, I would imagine, somehow spoke into this, weighed in on this decision. <clears throat> and I would say, I don't know if this is a, a Western thing or an, a, an American thing or a modern thing, but we are really bad at, in general, inviting other people into our decisions. And we tend to uh, make decisions more privately. We don't always want to seek counsel, especially when decisions involve money and large amounts of money. We don't want to invite trusted friends into that. I mean, have you ever found out from someone that you were close with that like, they you just found out one day, oh, they're moving or they're, they're leaving a church or they're switching careers or they're buying property and you had like no idea it was going on. Like no idea that maybe for months they'd even been thinking about this, praying about this, wondering if they should do this and they never thought to, to mention it to you. Now, I'm not saying that you, everyone needs to know your business and everyone needs to be invited into this decision-making process. So I'm not saying that, but there should be trusted people that know what you're going through, know how to pray for you, that, that is a safeguard for all of us to avoid making really bad decisions. And sometimes we follow our own heart in isolation and our own desires, and it leads us into a really bad place. And we need community, other people to say, hey, actually, yeah, that sounds great and right up your alley. And I think God is leading you that way. And I'd love to pray with you for that. Or, hey, actually, that, I have some questions and concerns that maybe you can't see, but let's talk about it. So I think we need to be better about inviting people into our decisions. One pastor, John Mark Comer, has modeled this. He and a few trusted friends uh, meet regularly for, for finances. And they bring their budgets, their own personal finances from their families, and they, they all look at everyone's. And if there are certain big purchases, I think, what is it, over $1,000? I don't know what the number is, but there's some number that's, hey, if it's going to be above this amount, we need to bring it to kind of the council. And we want to talk about it together. Not because you need others' permission necessarily to do this, but because in humility, we are better when we seek the counsel of others. There's, there's wisdom in many counselors. I know that whole sharing budget things for everybody is like, well, we're not doing that. Well, 
Maybe you should. I don't know. Maybe we all should. <laughs> we, we should learn to invite people into those decisions, whether it's financial or otherwise, okay? Um, and hey, even at the end of the day, scripture, prayer, community, the, the, the answer sometimes still won't be clear. And we still won't know exactly. There won't be, you know, the alphabet letters in the soup have aligned to make a coherent message to tell us what to do. And so sometimes we then, we just uh, pray, trust God, make the best decision we can, and off we go. So, there we go. Um, so we've seen a lot this morning. Okay. We've talked about suicide, even though that's not the main point of the text, but it's there. We've talked about uh, the sovereign will of God and scripture being fulfilled in our human decisions. That's not the main point of the text, but it's there. Uh, we've seen the doctrine of scripture breathed out by the Holy Spirit through human authors. It's there. It's, it's not the primary point of the text, but it's there. And we've seen a decision-making process and how to make biblical wise decisions. It's not the main part of the text, but it's there. So what is then really the main part of the text that this text is trying to show us? Again, it's all about what is the church and why is the church here? That's what the text is trying to to get at. That, that's, that's the heart of it. Look again, verse 21 and 22. It was necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So this, this new movement centered on Christ was built on the foundation of these 12 apostles. Jesus himself is the cornerstone. And yet these apostles were these first witnesses of the resurrection to proclaim that to the nations around them. And so if we want to avoid mission drift, we have to focus in here that our call is then to carry on this apostolic message and this apostolic mission. This is how the church was formed and what the church was for. And so we don't have the freedom to simply make church about whatever we want it to be about. Right? We need to go back to the roots, to the scriptures and see, God, what are we? Who are we? And what would you have us do? And, and we find the message of the apostles. Where do we find the message of the apostles today? It's, it's found in scripture. Right? I mean, think about it. Every single book of the New Testament was written by an apostle or by one close to an apostle with oversight from an apostle with the exception of Hebrews. So I'm not really sure who wrote that one, but it's been verified. So on. So every book of the New Testament written by an apostle or overseen uh, by an apostle. The New Testament was written before the apostles died out. So the message of the apostles, this, this gospel has been preserved in the scriptures. So we can come and read it and stay true to it. This is why we uh, give the word and the preached word such a prominent place in our worship services. This is why we encourage all of us to read the Bible uh, on our own and come, become familiar with the scriptures um, over time because it's the message of the apostles about the gospel of salvation and the very word of God. And we must never abandon it. And today there will be temptations to abandon the message and abandon the mission. There will be temptation to, to make church about any number of agendas other than the gospel and making disciples. There will be pressure to abandon the message of the apostles because it's offensive. And because people don't like how it's exclusive, 
and how it says Jesus is the only way for salvation or how it tells us how to live and what we can and can't do and what truly leads to life. We don't like that often. And so we as the church have to stay focused on the message of the gospel and the mission of making disciples, seeing lives transformed by the good news of Jesus. And again, what's, what's our message? First John 4.10. And this is love, not that we loved God, but he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. It's, it's Ephesians 2. It's we were, we were dead in our sins. We were dead in our sin. And like justice, we were dead in that water. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ. That's our message. And, and we have to stay true to this gospel proclamation. And here's the other temptation is we, we are tempted to slip into moralism as a church. And I think, honestly, if you ask most people out on the streets what Christianity is about, they're probably going to give you some answer about moralism. Like the church is about being good or obeying the Bible or trying to obey the commands of God and doing good work in the world. It's some kind of performance. It's some kind of moralism. It's some kind of be good enough because that's what God wants you to do. And it's, it's so tragic that so often the heart of the message is missed because that's not our message. Our message is not obey and perform and work hard. And here's some good advice from the Bible. Our message is the good news of the gospel that Jesus did everything for us, right? We couldn't save ourselves. We, we, we couldn't earn the love of God and earn God's salvation and clean ourselves up. We needed a savior. And so our message is good news, not good advice. It's listen to what the Lord has done for us. And that salvation is a, is a gift to be received not a prize to be earned or worked for. And do you see how that frees us then? To rest in the finished work of Christ. To celebrate what he's done for us. To make much of him. And then we simply get to, to live our lives in the love and joy and peace that comes with knowing Christ. Knowing that at the end of the day, I don't have to worry about did my good scale outweigh the bad just enough so I could squeak into heaven? We, we know the verdict is already in for those who are in Christ. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. The verdict is already in and then we can walk in freedom. It's only in Christianity that the verdict comes before the performance. Every other religion, worldview, model is you have to perform and hope to get the verdict in Christianity. The verdict comes cleansed, washed, redeemed, forgiven. And then we go and live our lives in joy in Christ. So we get to hold out that message to the world. Would you pray with me? Father, we love you and we, we thank you for your word. And we admit that as we walked through it this morning, there were a lot of themes and ideas that, that, that jumped out at us. And, and yet we pray that you'd help us, again, see the heart of it. And that is that, uh, Jesus, you came and, and you died and you rose again. And it was for the forgiveness of our sins that we might find new life in you.
Would you help us trust you? And would you help us carry on this, this legacy, carry on this, this mission founded on the apostles that we now today as your church in 2023 continue to do the same thing, to preach the same gospel, to call men and women to, to know you and trust you, to repent and to find forgiveness of sins and new life in you, Jesus. Help us be about your business. We love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you.